This is Stephen Blackwood, and you're listening to the Ralston College Podcast. Today's podcast is of a lecture I had the honor to give recently in London at the Temenos Academy, under the patronage of His Royal Highness Charles, the Prince of Wales. By way of introduction, I'd like to read you a few sentences by Prince Charles about the Temenos Academy. He writes, The work of Temenos could not be more important. Its commitment to fostering a wider awareness of the great spiritual traditions we have inherited from the past is not a distraction from the concerns of everyday life. These traditions, which form the basis of mankind's most civilized values and have been handed down to us over many centuries, are not just part of our inner religious life. They have an intensely practical relevance to the creation of real beauty in the arts, to an architecture which brings harmony and inspiration to people's lives, and to the development within the individual of a sense of balance, which is, to my mind, the hallmark of a civilized person. Those are the words of the Prince of Wales about the Temenos Academy, where this lecture was given. In this lecture, I speak about a wonderful book from the 6th century, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. That book was written in the twilight of the ancient world by a man soon to face execution, and it urgently explores whether and how we can attain inner stability and true self-knowledge in the midst of injustice, misfortune, distraction, and the movement of time. It was a bestseller for more than a thousand years. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Thank you very much, Dr. Neidler, and uh, let me thank, too, Stephen and Genevieve Overy for kindly inviting me here this evening. It is a great pleasure to be here at the Temenos Academy, because it's the Temenos Academy, and not least because in my uh, experience, it's not every day that someone asks you to speak about Boethius though he was, of course, a very important figure for, well, he was sort of on the bestseller list for about a thousand years. Uh, nowadays, one normally gets the response of Bohu. <laughs> so it's a real pleasure to be here to spend some time thinking about this wonderful little text, which I think goes to the heart of human experience of what the meaningful life is. I'm both going to presume that you've all read the text and that none of you have read it, if I can put it that way. So uh, I hope there'll be something here, if you haven't read it, that you'll be able to follow something of what I'm suggesting its argument is. But also, if you are well familiar with it, that you'll perhaps correct me afterwards if you don't agree with my account. (laughs) We're living in a time, I think this is simply an obvious statement of of significant upheaval, a real questioning about what we are both, I think both culturally and individually, but also in a time in which the traditional means of tackling those questions are perhaps less present than they could be. Not only because, at least in certain respects, our institutions, political, religious, educational, cultural, have in significant ways forgotten themselves, but also because of radical changes, for example, in the movement of people, in mass transit, and perhaps above all, in the human relation to technology, especially in the constant presence of interrupting and distracting devices like this one, which have brought about a state, I think, in which there is less quiet in human life than at any point in history. With the result that self-knowledge, contemplation, deep creativity, and all other sorts of things that depend on undistracted quiet, at least at regular intervals, are at least in significant ways 
harder to come by now than ever before. With regard to that problem of distraction and the loss of self, both in the life of the individual and more widely in our culture, the little book I'm going to speak about tonight, The Consolation of Philosophy, and the life of its author, Boethius, offer us, I think, an illuminating antidote. Let's call it a guide to recollection, where we remember and return to ourselves. So that, in a way, is loosely my topic this evening, to speak about recollection and self-possession in Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. But the ideas at work in Boethius had a very long history before he came along, and he is very intentionally giving them a kind of rebirth. So I'd like to start by sketching them out in the place they originate, in ancient Greece, more than a thousand years earlier. I want to begin with Greece not only to give us some images, some images that the poet Homer gives us, partly because images can be helpful, I think, when we're dealing with difficult philosophical abstract ideas. But I also want to return to Greece because I think it gives us a sense of how these ideas are themselves both the ground and the expression of a culture, both its basis and what comes out of it. We often rightly turn to Greece as a kind of origin of the cultural history, at least in um, Western Europe, that leads to our own culture. It is nonetheless salutary to note that it was itself the product of a very long cultural development about which we know far less. I had the opportunity recently to see the excavations of the Minoan town of Akrotiri on the ancient island of Thera, now Santorini. The flourishing of which town, complete with marvelous multi-storied buildings, wall paintings, and decorated pottery, was in the 17th century BC, before it came to an end with an, a sudden uh, volcanic eruption. So a thousand years before Homer, there is an awful lot going on in the Aegean. The astonishing developments of ancient Greece themselves rest on a long cultural evolution. Higher education, higher, I'm a work in higher education, so whenever I say higher, education seems to follow. Um, higher civilization is a fragile and almost miraculous achievement, which took a very, very long time to attain. It's the creating of a light that can very easily be snuffed out as well. That is, as it were, the context for the context I'd like to give tonight, Akrotiri, because it situates even the past, that is to say the past of the golden age of Greece, in relation to an earlier past. It places us already in the dynamic of the continuity of recollection, insofar as even what we remember is, in a sense, already a remembering. So I want to bring before us a couple of images from ancient Greece and, and really just from one wondrous poem that I'm sure you all are sort of familiar with at least, and that is the, the Odyssey of Homer. And an image just from the beginning is really all we're going to look at because it brings before us something of the dynamic that I want to look at in the Consolation of Philosophy. So the the Odyssey begins with a conference of the gods upon Mount Olympus. Athena wishes to help the hero Odysseus make his way home. But Odysseus had disrespected Poseidon, not only by blinding Polyphemus, but then by bragging about it. What I want to bring before us here is the sense in which the gods are having a real discussion one in which various claims are made, opposed, and then reconciled. Not a battle of power simply, but a working out of the truth of things. Or perhaps the truth of things is that these powers are themselves reconcilable. So Zeus says, when Athena accuses him of having forgotten 
Odysseus. He says, Zeus replies wonderfully, how could I forget Odysseus the godlike? He who is beyond all others in mind and who beyond others has given sacrifice to the gods who hold wide heaven. So somehow Zeus is, I think, suggesting here, if we're allowed to say Zeus suggests things, that it's Odysseus's mind that will make possible his homecoming. And yet it would be unjust for Odysseus to return home until his injustice against Poseidon has been righted. And that, in a way, is what the story of the Odyssey is. What we see here in this first scene is that the gods of Olympus are not an ultimately chaotic principle, but one in which the various elements of reality, for example, nature, reason, eros, art, family, and so forth, are all coherently reconciled, not statically, not in an inert way, but in and through the difficult tensions between them They disclose an underlying unity. Thus, the conference of the gods held under Zeus is a glimpse, I'm suggesting, into the Greek vision of an order that underlies reality, or that, in the truest sense, is reality, what's really real. So the gods of Olympus are not a chaotic, or not an ultimately chaotic principle, but one in which these various elements are held together. And thus, Odysseus is prevented from coming home, not by an external force, but by his own stubborn partiality for his overweening confidence in his own Athena-like crafty wisdom. His great ability to outsmart situations is not the whole of reality. There's also the brute nature, the, the brute, you might say the brute force of nature in Poseidon. So you might say reality is not outsmartable for the Greeks. And thus Odysseus's arrogant disbelief in his own natural limitations is itself the source of his undoing. And you see that basic idea played out again and again in the Greek tragedies. Insofar as any one standpoint, if it's treated as if it's absolute, leads to destruction. So if you think of Antigone, You know, the family is a reality. If you ignore the necessity of the city and you pay attention only to the family, that too will destroy you. And thus, Odysseus's return home is possible only as he comes to will within himself the order of the whole. That is, to understand that whole is within himself. But there's another quite fundamental and fundamentally Greek, I would suggest, element here that I'd like to draw our attention to. And that is in the very remarkable fact that Odysseus should want to go home at all. You will recall that the Odyssey begins with this wonderful image of the hero on the island of the goddess Calypso, where, frankly, life seems pretty sweet, really, with a goddess to make love to every night, with his every material need perfectly met. It's the kind of image of the immortal life of the gods which he is, in a sense, invited there to join. At least this is the image the poem gives us. And yet there he is. Homer gives us a beautiful image. There Odysseus is, longing for home, despite this immortal possibility in front of him, weeping mortal tears into his immortal clothing. He wants to return home knowing it is a mortal life, one of imperfection and toil, and ultimately death. But there in Odysseus's desire to return home, a return possible only by seeing in himself something of the order of the whole, is, I think, a really fundamental insight of the Greeks, namely that our finite lives have in them somehow a fullness in their finitude. And yet that Fullness is not where we begin. It's a journey to get there. So from this brief sketch of Odysseus's beginning, this few images from the beginning of the Odyssey, I think we have the elements I wish to bring before us as we turn to Boethius. First, something of the underlying coherence of reality itself, not 
despite its oppositions, but in and through them. The gods are not in a passive unity, but an active one, in which their competing claims are harmonized, but it's a real harmony. It is the nature of the real. Second, our alienation from that harmony, both through our own willful blindness and through the inherent difficulty of life itself. And third, the returning home, the finding of that whole or unity through a journey of self-knowledge within ourselves, and not despite, but because of and in our own experience of time and change. It's not difficult, of course, to see emerging in this great poem many of the elements of ancient Greek philosophy, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, which seeks above all, that is to say, the ancient Greek philosophy. I know this is a, this is a wild reduction, but uh, perhaps that's necessary sometimes. Seeks above all an understanding of how the parts are related to the whole, how the sovereignty, the logic, and the nature of the whole what I'm calling the life of the gods, how it is present in all of the parts. We see this architecturally, for example, in Greek architecture, where certain proportions replicate throughout a building at every level. And then it turns out that those very proportions occur throughout the human body and throughout nature generally. If you think about the golden ratio or, or golden mean. But it is most fundamentally in a meditation on the nature of the human being how in its own activity it comes to know itself by knowing in itself the activity of the whole, those ultimate principles that the Greek philosophical vision is directed. But this leads to a paradox, and that is, to put it very simply, how can we ever become something we are not already? If we begin in alienation and fragmentation, unconsciousness, sadness, despair, depression, how can we ever become anything other than that? Free, coherent, lively, in possession of ourselves. Do we leave ourselves behind in order to become something else? But if that were so, how would the second better state have any relation to the old one? Or as Plato puts it wonderfully in the dialogue named Mino, some of you may know, how can you look for something if you don't already know what it is? And how could you even recognize it once you found it, if you didn't already know before you started looking, in a sense, what you were looking for? Plato gives a wonderful account that gathers this idea, this dynamic, this paradox into one, and that's in his, his, his idea, his theory of recollection. And that, that has it that... The soul is immortal. It's born, in a sense, knowing everything. But it forgets. And thus, learning is really a remembering of what's already inside of you. And self-knowledge is thus an awakening of the self in the world, through which what is in you and forgotten, it's sort of implicit, becomes explicit and remembered. The thing is, this only works, this entirely presumes, you might say. It only works because, and if, what is in you is somehow also the nature of what is outside of you. Somehow what the nature of the world out there is must be somehow our nature. We could never find ourselves in it. So that is what we want to think about tonight, how that journey happens, or at least how Boethius suggests it happens in this wonderful text. I want to put to you, though, a sort of bold claim, and that is that the ideas and the ideals that surround and support and mediate this movement of the self to become itself, to discover that harmony outside of itself in itself, I want to suggest that that the ideas and ideals that make that possible were the Greeks' great and lasting gift. In architecture, in ethics, in philosophy, in drama, in theology, in politics, in the nature and freedom of the soul, in a certain sense, 
It's all there, or at least in a form clearly enough articulated to inspire subsequent age after age. I want to suggest to you that recollection is not simply a metaphor, a kind of a, just a kind of way of speaking, but an, an accurate account, or at least the metaphor gets at something that's really happening, of how we come to self-knowledge, both as individuals and as a culture. And I want to think, as we go through a little bit the life of Boethius and this wonderful book that he's left us with, I want to think about how these two, the individual and the culture, about how they are related. That is, how recollection in the self and how recollection in a culture or society are intrinsically connected. This beautiful and comprehensive intellectual vision of the Greeks may have been but a fleeting historic moment on a little shore of the Aegean with no further influence or history. But the seeds of Greek intellectual culture were spread far and wide by future developments in both East and West, not least for our purposes here this evening by the Roman Empire. The Romans depended on, were nourished and inspired by Greek intellectual culture, which provided, as it were, the intellectual and spiritual foundations of the empire for nearly a thousand years. One need only consider that Cicero, perhaps the greatest writer of the Latin language, was fluent in Greek. Of course, I'm not suggesting that there's no independent, ongoing intellectual development. Um, there's a very great one, but only that it is nourished by and inspired by the reading of these wonderful Greek texts. The great political machine of Rome also became, as you no doubt know, the vehicle for the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. And indeed, that religion, Christianity, is itself interpreted very much through those intellectual seeds of the Greeks. But by the time of the late Roman Empire, the knowledge of Greek was becoming rare. It's really, in fact, the case that the Roman aristocracy, and not only the Roman aristocracy, spoke Greek for nearly the entire history of Rome. And not only the aristocracy, there was a huge Greek population, principally slaves in Rome. So Greek was really a, a, a living language in, for most of the history of the Roman Empire. But by the time of the late Roman Empire, the knowledge of Greek was becoming rare. And that is where, finally, we come to Boethius. Enicius Manlius Severinus Boethius, to be precise. He was born about a year after the last Roman emperor was deposed by and replaced by a barbarian king. This is 476, if you're counting. Odoacer was himself taken over by Theodoric. But things were perhaps not as dramatically changed as this turmoil seems to suggest. They both were radically changed, and as we'll see, things were kind of wrapping up so far as ancient Rome was concerned. But they didn't know that, and in a certain sense, uh, life continued in Rome in many ways as before. Boethius was an orphan, actually, but born to a patrician family and raised in a powerful and wealthy and highly educated family, and, in, and educated himself, he was educated himself in Greek. So he's one of the last, at least this is a way of thinking of it, one of the last fluent Greek speakers who can have access to this whole world of classical learning. His career was highly successful. He rose to the high, one of the highest offices in the land, the Magister Officiorum. Both of his sons became consuls. He seems to have been acutely aware, though, of how much Rome had lost her intellectual foundations. Seeing what was lost, or being lost, and as one of the last to be fluent in Greek, he set out to translate as many works as he could from Greek into Latin to restore those intellectual foundations. Texts and music, astronomy, mathematics, logic. So convinced was Boethius of the fundamental character of those ideas that he devoted himself to a kind of cultural, intellectual recollection, an effort to transmit the vital insights of the past to those in the present and future. In that trajectory of his work as a scholar, connected, no doubt, to the cultural, political realities of his time, to his sense of what was fast slipping away, 
I think we can see how recollection is always a double-sided movement. It's both a looking backward that becomes a looking ahead and a looking ahead that becomes a looking back. Why look to the past if not to look forward and how in the same moment the looking forward becomes a looking back. So Boethius undertakes this enormous work of translation music, astronomy, mathematics, logic, as I'm saying. But then at the very height of his powers, his wealth, his station, his learning, he is accused of treason. We don't really know what happened, but he was, we think he was accused of colluding with the Eastern Empire against the king. He was put in prison, and after a year or so, this is in 524-25, he was brutally tortured and executed. There was to be no restoring of the foundations for ancient Rome. Within not too many years, the great ancient Roman Empire collapsed in ruins. And that was the end of Boethius, except it was not the end, in another sense. While he was in prison, Boethius had written a last, very beautiful little book. This one had all the learning of the man, of the scholar, but was of a very different character. While his earlier works, these translations, many of them are very abstract, sort of textbooks, really. This one is vivid in its particularity and is possessed by the urgency of the problems it articulates and seeks to address. It's written as a drama in which a woman named Philosophy comes to comfort an imprisoned man who has lost it all. To the imprisoned man, and I think we can say this is a figure, a character in this drama played by the author, Boethius himself, to the imprisoned man, the doctrines and ideals in the abstract were no help in a way that only the greatest of literary works can ever do. Boethius's consolation of philosophy brings these ideas to life. He distills the wisdom of Greece and Rome into the journey of a soul, his soul, and I think maybe ours. That journey is conceived as a journey of recollection, of remembering what one really is. It's a journey of recollection, though, in three ways, all intertwined. First, it's a recollection of the wisdom of the ancients. Second, as a recollection of the prisoner to his true self, a return to self-possession. And third, it is a text exquisitely wrought to bring about in those who attend to it, bring about in them the same movement, the same recollection of self, the same self-knowledge, the same self-possession. At least that, I think, is the idea. Though Boethius could never have known it, this wonderful little book was to do far more than I think he would ever have dared to hope, even though his particular hopes were all completely and utterly dashed. There's a seed depository somewhere in the far north where they're gathering all the seeds of known crops so that in the case of a, say, a nuclear war, there'll be a place to go to find the seeds that the future would need to replant them, out of which replanting those seeds which have survived can regenerate. And that, in a sense, is a good metaphor for what happens with Boethius's texts as a whole, but in particular with the consolation of philosophy. I'm going to argue that Boethius's distillation had the spiritual power to awaken in others the very truths it recollects. It was to become one of the most read works of literature for more than a thousand years. The consolation 
with Boethius, other texts as well, as I, as, I, as, I, as I mentioned, transmitted those seeds of ancient wisdom so they could grow again. In Anglo-Saxon England, King Alfred himself translated the consolation. During the Carolingian Renaissance, in the Middle Ages themselves, in the later Renaissance, and in, of course, all the way through modern Europe, Queen Elizabeth uh, I translated the consolation, and indeed is present in the ideals that gave birth to the new world, too. I think it is no exaggeration to say, though we're not saying it's only Boethius, he's only a part of it, but it is true to say that Boethius' endeavors, his learning and spiritual wisdom, played some role in giving rise to and shaping the world from his time until our own. All this is really to make a single point, and that is that the inner spiritual life of the individual and wider cultural renewal are intrinsically connected. Boethius was himself, at the twilight of Rome, the beneficiary of a tradition of learning, the internalization of which gave him the inner resources to face his final days, and not only to face them, but to allow them to call out of him this great spiritual achievement, to give in turn a new and vivid form to the wisdom of the ancients, a form that could speak directly to the hearts of many in both light and darkness. Monk and layman, monarch and bishop, poet and theologian for centuries to come. I want to emphasize that these are not just words. I once gave the consolation of philosophy to a friend of mine who who had been, <clears throat> excuse me, diagnosed with a terminal illness. And she wrote to me a few weeks later saying that words had never been so powerful to her. So let's now turn and look at Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy to get a sense of the recollection it aims to bring about. Now, of course, we can't go through this intricately wrought work in detail in just a few minutes, but we can look at a few key moments in its argument, and I hope also get a sense of its extraordinary literary power to see something of the vision of recollection that it both puts forth and brings about. The basic frame of the text, of course, is a drama, which there are two characters, a woman, an anthropomorphized philosophy, and a prisoner. She comes to comfort him in his despair, in his, let's say, in his prison cell. The book opens with a marvelous scene. It starts with a poem, a very woe-is-me poem, Latinist, say it's a pretty bad poem in a sense, and it's meant to be that, very sentimental, woe-is-me, I'm longing for death, but death won't come, I've lost everything. Interestingly, this is portrayed as the muses are dictating to him, as if he's passively receiving these emotions. So the first scene is one of passivity in relation to his emotional and psychological state. And then in comes, bursting into the scene, this astounding character with blazing eyes who says, who let these muses in here? She casts them out. She says, they're poetic harlots. They have no cures for his pain. She says, in fact, they only make it worse. So I think what's suggested here is that there is sometimes no way out from within the immediacy of our own sense of things, our feelings, our psychological state. She comes in immediately and says, uh-uh, what you're feeling is not really the whole story. In fact, what you're feeling is the reason you're stuck where you're stuck. It's amazing how different this very premise is from, I would say, a very widespread assumption in contemporary culture that 
affect or how we feel about things is often presented not simply as having a kind of reality, but a whole immediate absolute reality. Well, philosophy, that is, I'm often going to refer to philosophy as the character, not the discipline. This is philosophia, this wonderfully vivid, transcendent character. Philosophy rejects that straight away. She says there's a more real reality to what you are immediately perceiving. And indeed, your perception is part of the problem. It is a fundamental cause of your illness, she says. It's a beautiful scene that follows, because he, he can't even recognize her. He's blinded by his tears, he says. This lovely image in which she makes a fold in her dress and wipes away the tears from his eyes. She says, blinded as you are by the clouds of mortal affairs. So I take this to suggest that there often is really no way out from within our own internal cycles, tendencies, habits, dynamics. But then the question is, who is this woman? And that uh, is a big question. The description of philosophia in those first chapters is, I think, one of the richest moments in all of literature. But just to pick out in a couple of elements of the description, she's described as ancient, but having blazing eyes that see more clearly than eyes of the present. So in some sense, I think she's an image of eternal wisdom, but also as present in the moment. She's portrayed as a real thing, not a creation, not an imaginary, not a construct, a real thing, independent of him. But yet, at the same time, one has to think, Boethius writes this book, there he is in her, his prison cell. He's generating this image that we now appreciate when we read the text. So there's a sense in which she must be within him, too. Wisdom or sapientia in the Latin. She is, in a way, the logos, both external and internal. And both of these are dynamic and not static realities. For Boethius, truth is not inert. It's something alive. So the whole text is going to be about the relation between the internal and the external. That work of recollection or conversion is another way in which the ancients conceived of this ascent. So she has to clear these immediate clouds so he can at least talk and recognize her. He's really in a mess at the start. Gosh, and I think we all know people and perhaps ourselves have had experiences of being there when there's no way out. We seem to be totally, completely victims of circumstance. So she clears his eyes and he can recognize her. And at that point, he's, he regains his ability to speak. And he is able to encounter her, you might say, in a discursive way and to say all right, let me tell you, let me really tell you what I think is wrong here. And he gives a very long and a very persuasive account of the injustice that he has suffered. He is a victim. He's been the victim of injustice, of fraud, in a situation in which his very virtues were used against him to bring about his downfall. So he says... And he says, so here I am, deprived of all my goods, stripped of all my honors, and the object of evil gossip, and punished for my good service. And I seem to see the wicked in their factories of crime, wallowing in their evil delight, all the corrupt now plotting new accusations, while good men cower in fear, terrified by what has happened to me. The base and wicked are encouraged to greater boldness by their impunity, to greater crimes by the rewards, and the innocent deprived not only of safety, but even of the chance to defend themselves. I think it needs to be said, this is not a weak argument. That the innocent suffer is surely not a questionable claim. And this brute fact seems to suggest a pretty fundamental injustice in the nature of things themselves. 
This is indeed one of the hardest of all perennial questions, among the most difficult challenges to the human spirit. For it seems to suggest that reality itself is intrinsically irrational and unjust, and thus to make futile all our efforts to make sense of it. The heart of the prisoner's complaint is a fundamental question. I think we all ask, certainly when faced with hardship, loss, or senseless suffering. I read the obituary today on my way here of a uh, colleague, who was not an intimate friend, but someone I greatly admired. I'm sure all of you have faced death or illness or other circumstances beyond your control. So the prisoner here is making, I think, a pretty strong and legitimate claim, a fair complaint about the nature of things. And it seems, from what we know, that's at least given the benefit of the doubt that what he tells us about his own situation was true. And yet, here is where the tough love really begins. If you've read The Consolation, you know what happens next. Philosophy comes in and she just has none of it. She says, when I saw you weeping in your grief, I knew at once that you were wretchedly banished. But how remote was that banishment? I should not have known if your speech had not told me. But how far from your homeland have you strayed? Strayed, not been driven, I say. Or if you prefer to be thought of as driven, then how far have you driven yourself? For in your case, it could never rightly have been possible for anyone else to do this. Surely you know the ancient and fundamental law of your city by which it is ordained that it is not right to exile one who has chosen to dwell there. So she asserts his fundamental agency and freedom even in the face of his having suffered terrible things. This is again, I think, a sharp contrast with at least widespread views in contemporary culture, which I think amount to a kind of determinism, either a material determinism, which is alleged to be the standpoint of modern science. I don't think that is the standpoint of modern science, but alleged to be. Everything is just matter and its motion. It's all in your genes. You've no freedom. It's all predetermined. Or in the reductions of individuals to the traits of group, whether sex or race or whatever the case may be, that's what's primary, not your individual character. Or indeed, simply in, as in Boethius's case, people really suffer. And there can be a strong sense, I think, that, well, that's it. All three of these forms of determinism are perhaps fairly widespread in the present. But here philosophy asserts absolutely the freedom and independence of the soul itself and says it can never be alienated from what it really seeks, except by itself. And yet she sees at the same time that he has been alienated from himself. And so she has to help him find his way home. That is, of course, what the whole book and certainly the remainder of the book is about. And we could spend many weeks, and it would be a great pleasure for me to spend time with this group going through that, this book sentence by sentence. But I'll give here, just in the time I have left, a bare sketch of a few key moments to hope to lay out the logic, the arc of the text, and perhaps if you've not read it, to whet your appetites to spend a little more time with this wonderful text. But I hope I've laid out a sense of what the work needs to be, that the answer can't be entirely outside of ourselves, or it would not be something we could attain. But it can't be entirely inside of ourselves, or we'd have it already. So it has to somehow put those together. Now, the first moment that philosophy leads him through is a very, seems to be a very negative one. 
And negative in the sense that it's a stripping away of all these things he thought were him. He's lost himself in the world, and so her first act is to separate him out from the world so he can see what he is and what he is not. His sense of injustice is caused by his mistaken view that the things that he's lost, wealth, honors, position, were really his in the first place. Her argument is that none of these things can ever really be you. You know, here is the, here is the beauty of the jewel, she says. That beauty isn't yours, it's in the jewel. It could never be you, it's outside of you. So too with money, uh, fame, political position. All of these can be lost or taken away through events that are beyond your control. Sickness, natural disaster, crash of the stock market, random violence. And if your real self depended on those, then it would always be dependent on things beyond your control, on fortune, on circumstance, on luck, good health. She says, no, that can't be, that can't be it. We know because those are not you that that can't be what you really are. This is tough love, to be sure. But for philosophy, the only way to recover the self is first to separate it out from everything it is not in order to put it on a sure foundation to recognize what it is. I think in our time, that stripping away of the self, that separating of the self out from what it is not, is perhaps even more difficult than it surely perennially is. This is a perennial tendency and difficulty, our losing ourselves in the world. But perhaps even, at least in a new way, difficult, because so much conspires to blur the line between our inner lives and everything else. I think perhaps certain technological devices are particularly at work in this blurring of the line between self and world. And this is, a, to be completely candid, a huge problem for me, the distraction of the telephone, the way in which the screen comes to mediate our whole relation to the world. So the stripping down seems like a negative movement, and in a sense it, it is. You are not all these things at the tough tearing off of the Band-Aid, in a sense. Shows the self what it is not. Nothing that it is not can be essential to its realization, its recollection, its proper freedom. But what seems like a simply negative movement becomes a positive one. For in this negation, this withdrawal from the world, the self, the soul comes to know itself. That withdrawal is both the condition and the cause of self-knowledge. The space that opens up in pulling ourselves away from what we are not is the space in which we can discover what we are. Only in that space, philosophy would say, free from dispersion and what is outside of us, does the soul naturally return upon itself and come to know what it is. Boethius would say that is the very nature of the soul. You might think of times that you've been so busy you've not had a moment to yourself for days or weeks on end and suddenly find yourself in a space of quiet for the first time not consumed with something else. I'm sure you've had that experience of a kind of quiet space in which you feel your self come back to you. In that moment, you might say, the moment the soul doubles back on itself... It comes to see itself in a way for the first time. You know, that sense in that finally, that quiet after all the busyness, that you go, oh, that's what I am. That's what I was looking for. You look at your actions, your desires, your habits, and you, you see them. You're not simply in them. You're not just in the stream going down, covered in the flowing water. You've stepped out of the stream and you're looking at it. And then... This is a positive movement next because it turns out that in all of that externality and all of that seeking in the outside world, there's really something serious at work. It's a beautiful phrase philosophy gives. She says, for man's mind, though the memory of it is clouded, yet does seek again its proper good. But 
like a drunk man, cannot find by what path it may return home. So you might say this uh, negative movement is a kind of sobering up. But it's a sobering up to see that what's in those external pursuits is not simply outside of you. The outside of you bit of it is that these goods, money, and uh, office, and so forth, those can never be you. But what philosophy shows is as you pull back from them, you see that what you're really seeking in them is not a material good, but a spiritual one. And she looks at all of the, these goods one by one to show what is, she would say, really being sought. So if you're lo- looking for wealth, for example, she'll say, well, it's not really the money you're after, it's the, the self-sufficiency you think it will give you. So you're not going to be in need or in want or, or, or unable to, to do something that's necessary. And then she says, well, but money can never give you that self-sufficiency. She goes through all of them one by one to say that the very spiritual good you're seeking of, say, self-sufficiency in the case of wealth, she'll say, it cannot produce. In fact, she says, money creates problems. You have to protect it. You can lose it. So she, she's, she's, she's suggesting that what the self, I shouldn't say suggesting, this, the argument moves pretty inexorably. Uh, the argument moves to show that in those external pursuits is sought a spiritual good. And she concludes that in power, wealth, fame, respect, and beauty, what is really sought is sufficiency, respect, power, celebrity, and joy, spiritual realities, and not in a divided way. She says these in the end, if you look at the argument of the third book, these in the end are all aspects of a single good, the same single good from different aspects. So she says what you're really seeking is an inalienable good, the possession of which confers all of these at once not externally in a way that they can be taken away, but internally in such a way that they're really what you are. You have become one with that. She'd say that's the only true self-possession that cannot be taken away. This is the marvelous turn in the argument, for it is a marvelous turn in the soul in which it is awakened to the true nature of its nature and its freedom and to the infinite character of its vocation. So in all these pursuits in the world, something deeper is at work than initially appeared. It's a way that speaking about these spiritual realities can seem, I know, in a way abstract. This was brought home to me just last night in Oxford at the Martyr Monument. Some homeless fellows that I got to talking with for, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, and... We were talking about what they were, where they were at in life and why they were homeless. And, and I asked this one fellow if he had a trade. And he said, yes, I'm a painter. He said, in fact, if you go into, I think he said it was Balliol College in a certain room in a certain place. He said, I painted that part of the room. And I said, but is there no work? He said, he said, the trouble is that without a home, he said, I just don't feel I have the stability. I don't have the stability I need to keep my tools and do all the things in order then to be able to work during the day. I don't sleep well at night. I'm exhausted. We're always looking for meals. So anyway, the point is, he says, I need stability. Well, stability is a spiritual reality. This awakening of the self is just beautifully portrayed in this this only one poem of the Constellation's many poems I want to read here as we come towards the end. Though lions from Carthage wear fine-fashioned chains and eat out of a man's hand and fear being used to beatings, their harsh master, if blood once touched their bristling jaws, their long inactive spirits revive. With rumbling growls, they are themselves again. Shake their necks free from broken knots and the first to slake their rage torn by blood-stained teeth is their trainer. The treetop chirruping bird is shut in a coop like a cavern. Men treat her as a toy and care for her with kindliness, putting in honeyed drinks and food aplenty. Yet, if she sees hopping in her narrow cage the beloved shade of trees, 
She scatters her food beneath her feet, and all she wants is her woods. Bend now with all your strength, the sapling's top to the ground, but if the right hand bowing it let go, its top again points straight up to the sky. Aren't those lovely images? In the lion, that sense of awakening, the uncontainability of our souls, if only they taste what they are made for. The songbird, the beauty with which the soul longs for its return once it catches a glimpse of its true home, the refusal to allow anything else to satisfy, and the sprightly springy sapling, the natural rebound of the soul. These images speak of return, of recollection, of knowledge of self, and return home as one and the same. Now, it's it's a multi-staged argument through the rest of the text. But what has happened in this reflection, the self withdraws, it comes to see what it's really seeking, and it turns out what it's really seeking is the good itself, self-contained, complete. It's desiring that good. But what this argument shows is that the very order the prisoner thought was missing from the world or absent is present in it. For the very seeking of that good is proof of its sovereignty. This is the argument. Aristotle has a wonderful phrase. He says, God moves all things by being loved. In our very seeking is revealed the sovereignty of that which we seek. So says philosophy. That good which pulls us along through our inward desire. And thus too is revealed the justice that he could not see. And why is that? Because in the end, the wicked fail to attain the good they seek, while the good attain the very inalienable and infinite good they are seeking, regardless of external measures in the world. I'm sure you have encountered in your own lives people doing good and bad things and have a sense that when someone has done something terrible, it's, it's in them. They're, in a way, that is what they have become. This is an argument that goes back, by the way, to Plato's Gorgias. But so too, I'm sure you've seen a depth and consistency of love, virtue, self-sacrifice, courage. That's what the person is. The good they will is what they have become. Cannot be taken away. In this movement, wonderfully, The world is retrieved. This text is not preaching or advocating or arguing for a quietist standpoint, as if the answer is that we should simply withdraw off to the world to have our lovely recollection session and just stay there or hope that we can leap out into eternity. Precisely what this recollection reveals is the coherence and integrity of our lives in the world. That is a paradox, I know, that by withdrawing, we come to know ourselves in the world and to become indeed more present to that from which we have withdrawn. Very beautifully, then, And the text concludes with this reflection in a very philosophical form. But very beautifully what this text is saying then. By the very fact that you can come to see what you are really seeking in and through those broken, finite pursuits, it means somehow those broken, finite pursuits are in the thing that you seek or else you couldn't come to know it in them. It's not another world in which you come to see this good at work. It's in the broken one 
the finite one. The text concludes with a reflection on the relation between eternity and time. That is fitting because this whole journey has been a journey of recollection, of reflection in memory. Not just memories. They say that goldfish have a three-second memory. You can imagine swimming around the little tank. Oh, look, a castle. Oh, look, a castle. But you wouldn't get that far because there's no memory to have the idea of a castle. There's no memory by which you could hold the memories to know them. And so memory is not just memories. It's in a sense in which what is in those memories is disclosed. The patterns in memory lead to a knowledge. You might say an upward ascent to what is in them. But that can only be possible because those patterns, as it were, those deeper knowable realities in them are in you already. So in this recollection, in the holding of ourselves in memory, what Boethius suggests is that that shows that time is held in eternity, that this is a mediation of moment after moment, just in confused, total disorder, flying off into dispersion, but that in recollection that is collected, stabilized, known as knowable, as stable. And thus, in that slowing of things down, that gathering of ourselves through memory, there is revealed, this is how the text concludes, I would argue, that the temporal world, that this world, this life that we're living, both reveals and is held within eternity. That is, that the still moment of the eternal is somehow present in the movement of time. What this shows is that our life in the world is the very basis for this discovery. So this leads into the conclusion to this meditation on the relation of time and eternity to show that in our recollection, there is a passing from temporal to eternal that is in time itself. And that recollection is both upheld by and a revelation of what's really real. You might say the divine activity. For the godlike character of our own self-relation is not a closed loop. It's self-contained only insofar as it is constituted in relation to an infinite good that is beyond us, but also the ground of what we are. It is to return to our beginning to see the life of the gods of Olympus, the life of the whole, as the life that is, in some sense, our own. To find ourselves, to collect ourselves from the world, and to find in that recollection revealed our relation to the infinite life of the gods. Their eternal harmony as somehow present to us, or let's say taking us up into it. That is, I think, the great power of this book, that to read carefully, to follow, is to enter into the very act of recollection that it describes. I think it is written precisely to try to accomplish that or to lead us into that itself. There is a vast difference between the world that produced Homer and the one that gave rise to Boethius, just to state the obvious. And yet there is a profound continuity, too, in precisely the vision of the individual as having an intrinsic relation to the life of the whole in its own activity. And in a deep reflection on the ways in which that relation is realized, made actual, that is, the cultural and intellectual and pedagogical forms that awaken the self, that bring it home to itself in the world in which it lives. For not just any book can do what the consolation does, nor just any art or architecture or music or education to actualize what is potential in the structure of the self. 
but those that speak to it of its nature, that draw it out, that reveal to it the coherence of the whole, such that it can recollect that coherence in itself, come to know itself in those, returning home in those to itself. And so there's a double-sided movement. On the one hand, it is the life of a culture that makes possible that inner life. Think of Boethius, all those days in the library. It's the life of a culture that makes possible that inner life, the recollection of the forms of culture and education that make possible that inner recollection. On the other, it is the recollection of the individual soul to itself, that very individual recollection that gives rise to the illumination that can light a whole culture, as in a way I'm suggesting is true in Boethius. So this double-sided movement of culture to individual and of individual to others. For recollection is an inherently illuminating activity for self and others alike. It is the revelation of the life of the gods of Olympus in us, or rather, of we in them. There's an awful lot that could be said, I think, about our contemporary culture, which I think is right to see the self as the locus of meaning. But at the same time, it has that, I would argue, in a kind of tragic form, either because it insists on an absolute arbitrary agency, can do anything, you have no nature, or because it insists on a kind of passivity that denies it its agency. But the fullness of the movement of recollection is that our inner nature, we have an inner nature, and that it is a revelation of, and indeed the activity of what is most real in and beyond us. So it seems to me this twofold work of recollection is what the Temenos Academy wonderfully undertakes. By presenting to us the great works and spiritual traditions of the past, it illuminates the way of recollection for and in each of us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. You can subscribe on all the usual apps. Please do if you'd like to hear more. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.